informed about the School yes. of America. Yes, very good. Yeah. And I've heard rumors that uh, our wolf is sitting in now for Mike Perini oh, today. Good. And instead of uh, that related to Beowulf? food that what one can eat, it sounds like he'll have food for thought. I'm sure he will. And I think, uh, you know, I've heard that our wolf was actually kicked out of the School of Americas. This? Our wolf. Oh, no, our wolf, the gentleman I, that, oh, with the wild hair that I, came in earlier. Yeah, okay. I think he attended, and they just threw him out after a couple weeks. Yeah, I think he kept screaming, we're at war, your government hates you, they don't care about you, they're taking all your money. Right. Yeah. I wish they'd kick me out of prison, but anyway. That yeah, <laughs> I think he was demanding accordions instead of machine guns, <laughs> and they couldn't deal with them anymore. Oh, well, we want to thank our guest. Pastor Booker This Hush. is my benediction Check. is go and sin less frequently. Oh, thank you. Sin less frequently. I was going to ask you for a prayer, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, give us a prayer. Send us that <laughs> one. We do that. He's laughing. Oh, no, no. That's the name I revoke your license. Okay. <laughs> no. Well, if we sin less frequently, I'll take that as okay. a, as a yeah, as Jesus a says go and sin no more, but I think that's a little more realistic. Hey, that okay, thank someone you. told me in Revelations it says, hurt not the earth nor the trees. Yes. It does? What? What is it? That's wonderful. I do not know the the chapter and verse, but it's in Revelation. Hurt not the earth nor the trees. God said not to hurt the earth or the trees, Ollie. How come these bozos are running around killing us and poisoning us? Well, they're still at the beginning of the Bible. Oh, okay. What you're quoting is at the end. I'm sorry. The human race will get to the end of the Bible eventually. We just have to wait it out. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, no. Thanks that, for that tuning in. The Bible doesn't foretell, it forth tells. That's <laughs> okay, a big thanks. difference. Thank you, Chuck, for coming Please in. Thank don't you so much. Me. Happy, <laughs> tra- happy trails, happy trials. Oh, Renegades Listen to the White Buffalo Woman production is engineered by the lovely Alex Belhage. I'm Charmy Golson for Ali Transboy Bratton. Say goodbye, Ali. Bye. And Chuck Booker Hirsch, I want to thank you. Please try to remember You're we're welcome. all related. Next week, we're going to talk to Charmaine Whiteface, organizer and. Uh, head honcho as it were at Defenders of the Black Hills so do your homework and call us up next week with some more questions thanks for calling in Rick talk to you next week it's 6.30 this is Radio Free Ann Arbor WCBN FM My name is R. Wolf, and I usually come on at 7 o'clock with Face the Music. My friend Mike Perini needed to work elsewhere tonight, so he asked me to please fill in for him. Now, when you get his show, which is called Pandora's Lunchbox, and my show, which is called Face the Music, uh, the result is normally referred to around here as Pandora's Face. What's happening tonight is I'm putting together things in layers to celebrate, um, well, let's see, being alive also celebrating um, resisting oppression and celebrating Edgefest coming up this weekend all throughout downtown Ann Arbor. What I'm going to air now after we get done with this excerpt from a Russian film is a documentary on the Tet Offensive. Then we're going to hear Albert Eiler with Henry Grimes playing the bass, okay? That's what's going to be happening for a while. Freeform at 8. Feel free to just gyrate around the room here. And if you know Russian, you can join in here.
other room now, you can tell. <coughs> He's sitting at a table and looking at what's for dinner here. So this does have something to do with food. Tet, the Vietnamese New Year. A massive Viet Cong and North Vietnamese offensive struck the cities of South Vietnam. Attacks spilled into the living rooms of America and split the White House staff. Yes, I was optim optimistic after the Tet Offensive, even more optimistic uh, 
in a sense than before because it's one thing to have confidence that you're going to cope with this maximum effort it's another thing to, to see that everyone was coping you'll see that the cables from Saigon from the Bastard Bunker told us that the, the enemy was defeated on the ground very early it would take time to mop up for the rest of us who were not in the National Security Council staff even though we were reading many of those cables uh, and going down there for such reassurance as we could get, we were also watching the American television. And American television was showing a different sight. That sense of the awfulness, the endlessness of the war, the unethical quality that did not recognize that when a man was taken prisoner, he was not to be shot at point-blank range. Uh, the terrible sight of General Luan raising his revolver to the head of a captured Viet Cong and killing him. They were awful the contradictions, the cables on the one side, the television on the other. It was very disturbing. Countrywide, here is NBC News correspondent Jack Perkins in Tokyo by satellite. 232 GIs killed and 900 wounded makes one of the heaviest weeks of the Vietnam War. And it is not a week. It is just over two days, the past two days, two of the worst we have known in Vietnam. Sniper fire is still coming from some buildings around the office quarter. Look across the street from the Joint Chiefs of Command, high-ranking South Vietnamese. Vietnam was history's first television war. Now, as the fighting ripped into Saigon, millions of Americans watched the battle on the evening news. that are trying to push him out this way, but he's got, uh, he's heavily fortified, he's got a lot of ammo. What's he got, small arms? Small arms, automatic fire, grenade launcher, and air grenades. You've lost any men here? Uh, well, I've got uh, five, six, six people I've had wounded. Now CIA men and MPs have gone into the embassy and are trying to get the snipers out by themselves. Nothing dramatized the Viet Cong's drive more vividly to Americans than the scene inside the U.S. Embassy compound in Saigon, the South Vietnamese capital. The center of American power in Vietnam had come under fire. you uh, assess yesterday's activities and today's what is the enemy doing are these major attacks or that's uh eod setting off a couple of m79 uh, duds i believe how would you assess the enemy's uh purposes yesterday and today uh, the the enemy 
very deceitfully has taken advantage of the pet truce in order to uh, create max maximum consternation uh, within uh, South Vietnam, uh, particularly in the populated areas. The consternation was indeed maximum. For years, the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong had fought mainly in the rice fields and jungles. Now, for the first time, they were fighting in the cities in their biggest offensive of the war. They hit nearly every province and district capital across South Vietnam. They hit Westmoreland's own headquarters near the Saigon airport. They hit key targets throughout Saigon including the government radio station. I was the head of a squad assigned to attack the Saigon radio station. And on January 27th, our regional command gave me the final orders. This was, I was told, a once-in-a-lifetime assignment. We were instructed to occupy the radio station in less than two hours, then turn it over to the regular forces. This is the main Vietnamese language radio station in Saigon, and right now there are an undisclosed number of VC inside occupying the station. They are not broadcasting on the air, and they're surrounded by South Vietnamese troops, and they're pinned down inside. We think they're going to be th throwing. Uh, we think they're going to be throwing tear gas any moment now to try to get them out that way. There's been a lot of shooting out the windows from inside, up on the second floor. A comrade inside the radio station had captured an enemy machine gun and had fought with it throughout the night. By nine o'clock in the morning, he had only 20 rounds left. He was wounded, his leg shattered. He asked me to go and find out whether he should try to hold the place or blow it up. At about 10 o'clock in the morning, we had only eight men inside with a very large explosive. They detonated the explosive, destroying the entire radio station and sacrificing themselves in the blast. U.S. combat troops had been in Vietnam for nearly three years before Tet 1968. Yet all their superior power had failed to grind down the enemy. The war was deadlocked. In July 1967, communist planners in Hanoi debated their next move. Some wanted to continue their war of attrition. 
But Ho Chi Minh approved a bold offensive designed to break the deadlock and open the way to power. The war in 1967 posed a different problem for Lyndon Johnson. He had to raise taxes to continue both the war and his social programs. To rally domestic support, he had to promise light at the end of the tunnel. How do you see it, General? Very, very encouraged. I've never been more encouraged during my entire uh, almost four years in country. I think we're making real progress. Uh, everybody is very optimistic that I know of uh, who is uh, intimately associated with our effort there. We feel that on the military side there has been substantial progress over the past two years, and that in the last six months the progress has been even more rapid than in the 18 months before that. All the challenges have been met. The enemy is not beaten, but he knows that he has met his master in the field. Johnson had orchestrated this campaign of optimism only weeks before Tet. But he had reason to believe an enemy attack of some kind was coming. During the two previous years, the communists had staged winter offensives along South Vietnam's borders. Now, as U.S. intelligence detected large deployments moving south, Westmoreland expected similar assaults. He rushed 6,000 American Marines and South Vietnamese troops to Khe San, a remote frontier outpost near the Ho Chi Minh Trail. From here, he had hoped to control North Vietnamese infiltration into South Vietnam's northern provinces. The North Vietnamese attacked Khe San in January, several Crazy. days before Tet. Westmoreland thought this would be a decisive engagement. Oh, I think his plans uh, concern uh, a major effort to uh, win a spectacular battlefield success uh, on the eve of uh, Tet, which is a Chinese New Year, which takes place at the end of this month. Johnson was so concerned that he kept a model of Quezon in the White House. But neither he nor his generals then fully knew the communists' real purpose in fighting there. I did feel that it was a, a, a target that the enemy was very much interested in, that he would want to seize it. And I wanted to fight him in the hinterland rather than allow him to get down among the people, which would have been very costly in casualties. Our objective was to inflict casualties on the enemy at Khaesan, thus compelling him to shift more of his forces there from the southern part of the country. In that way, it would be possible for our people to organize in order to liberate the south. But because we drew larger enemy forces into Khaesan and allowed them to supply and reinforce themselves, we could not turn the encounter into a final big battle. Days after they began to show Khaesan, the communist commanders issued final orders for their nationwide offensive against South Vietnam cities. The longest battle was waged for Hue, the old imperial capital. Survivors of the battle tell different stories. One is a refugee with families still in Vietnam. 
the night of Tet, the Lunar New Year, was different from other New Year's Eves. Firecrackers went on longer. They came faster and faster. They were more, many more than on other New Year's. The sounds of firecrackers and gunfire interspersed. Nobody realized that it was the gunfire of communists who were overrunning the city of Bay. At that time, I was at the nursing school, now the secondary school for nurses. I was among the students there, and weapons were smuggled into us. At the nursing school, we also managed to print a number of leaflets and tracts for the National Liberation Front, calling on the population to remain calm and not carry out reprisals when its forces entered the city. For example, when people arrested an enemy agent, they were to turn him over to the cadres. Communist soldiers came in and asked my father his occupation and his residence. They told my father to describe his background. My father replied that he was deputy district chief of Treo Fong and that he was already old and would retire in one year. They wrote down everything, then went on to other houses. The North Vietnamese and Viet Cong dominated Hue for three days. They rounded up South Vietnamese officials and government sympathizers. Some eluded arrest and fled with other civilians. Many did not. My father was ordered to attend a study session for 10 days, and he was told that he would be released afterward. My mother and I accompanied him to the school. There were about 100 persons there. We stayed there until we saw my father leave. My mother and I were very worried because in 1946, my father's father had been arrested in the same way by the communists. He never returned. The people so hated those who had tortured them in the past that when the revolution came to Hue, they rooted out those despots to get rid of them, just as they would poisonous snakes who, if allowed to live, would commit further crimes. And so, even though our policy was to re-educate and never kill anyone who surrendered to us, the people of the city took justice into their own hands. And there was little our revolutionary commanders could do to control them while the fighting raged. Troops of South Vietnam's 1st Infantry Division joined U.S. Marines in the counterattack against Hue. Many were fighting for their homes and for a historic city. The Nguyen emperors had built the citadel, Hue's walled fortress, early in the 19th century. They modeled it on the impregnable forbidden city in Peking, the Chinese capital. The North Vietnamese army set up a command post next to the throne in the palace of perfect peace. 
Delta Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Regiment, U.S. Marines, headed for the Citadel. I think my most vivid uh, memory as I, as I went in was in talking with one of the other company commanders who had already uh, been participating there uh, in the action for a couple of days. And um, in, in a very matter-of-fact uh, way, without a great deal of embellishment on his part, uh, he just frightened the hell out of me in telling me uh, how bad uh, it was. And I thought in my mind right then and there that, you know, hey, here I am with a fresh company, and I knew without having to be told that what my mission was going to be uh, the next day was going to be to go try to take this fortified uh, tower position along the east wall. And sure enough, that, uh, that evening when I went in to be briefed, uh, Major Thompson, uh, he just said, Delta Company, tomorrow uh, you're going to take that east wall. And I said, aye, aye, sir, and uh, went at it. February 14th, Delta Company took the fortified tower, then moved on. Uh, we tried our best to avoid uh, malicious damage, if you would. Uh, we just didn't shoot at walls just to blow them down. Uh, but when we had to shoot at a house, we shot at a house. When we had to destroy a house, we destroyed it. But we didn't go in there with the uh, express purpose uh, that this is a wonderful opportunity to show how uh, great our weapons are and how much destructive power they possess. Uh, as a result of their being so entrenched, it required for us to, to bring maximum firepower at our disposal to eliminate it. fortunate in that we did have the weapons that were capable of, of rooting the uh, NVA and the Viet Cong out of their position. They directed artillery fire into the area where I lived. All the houses and trees were destroyed.
They also directed rocket fire against the homes of the people in my neighborhood. The people here used kerosene and gasoline, and so their homes burst into flames when they were hit by the rockets. Old folks, children, and pregnant women who could not flee were burned alive in their homes. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And throughout all of this, you constantly uh, had this fear. Uh, not so much uh, that you were going to die, because I think to a certain degree that was a given. This was combined with the, the semi-darkness type of environment that we were fighting in because of the, the low overcast, the fact that we didn't see the sun. gave it a very eerie, uh, spooky uh, look. You had this utter devastation uh, all around you. You had this, this horrible smell. I mean, it, you just cannot describe the smell of death, especially when you're looking at it a couple of weeks along. It's, it's horrible. Uh, and it was, it was there when you uh, ate your rations. Uh, it was almost like you were, you were eating death. Uh, you, you couldn't escape it. After 24 days of fierce fighting, South Vietnamese Army units entered the citadel and raised the flag of South Vietnam. Way had been saved but destroyed.